When I talk about consolidation in the agriculture sector, I'm largely referring to seed and chemical companies. These are the corporations which sell their products to farmers, and though it involves multiple kinds of crops and produce, corn and soybeans make up a huge area of the United States that the sector focuses on. I contacted Claire Kellaway from the Open Markets Institute to talk more about consolidation and why it can be dangerous, especially in the agriculture and food sectors, and how policy can impact future mergers. My name is Claire Kellaway. I am a food reporter at the Open Markets Institute, which is an anti-monopoly think tank studying issues of consolidation and antitrust policy. Uh, and I specifically cover food and agriculture. So how does, how does the Open Markets Institute get involved with that kind of behavior? Yeah, so at the Open Markets Institute, we study all different kinds of that exclusionary conduct. I mean, basically antitrust policy is what we study and it's a matter of creating, you know, fair market rules and regulating for, you know, healthy competition and fair business practices. So we both document instances of unfair or like abuses of market power a classic example is a large company using their wealth to buy up other companies, mm -hmm. um, such to the point where, you know, they have this outsized market share to cut out other competitors. Um, I think of antitrust policy as pretty boring and straightforward. Like we're asking for corporations like not to be allowed to break laws that we passed in like the 20s and 30s. And, before that, we're asking for corporations like not to use like huge Wall Street backing to offer artificially low prices and drive their competitors out of business. We're asking for like basic rules about not setting up exclusive deals between competitors. It's really just asking for a fair playing field. Unfortunately, the state of the sector today is not a fair playing field. In the past decade, chemical and seed company mergers and acquisitions have allowed three companies to control two-thirds of the crop seed and nearly 70% of the agricultural chemical markets. A possible solution has been recently proposed in various bills, which seek to put a moratorium on further mergers and acquisitions. I asked Claire how this would work and whether it was a realistic proposition. I mean, absolutely. The, the goal behind that bill is to, you know, put a pause on mergers. Mergers are past a certain threshold approved by the government. Um, and so they could just as well be blocked <laughs> by the government. And, and the idea is that they're paused until new policies are put in place that would more clearly regulate the system. As it stands, antitrust law has become very, very permissive to mergers. You look at things like the Bayer-Monsanto merger, which by all antitrust standards of, you know, even the recent past, like the 60s, even 70s, would have definitely be considered illegal and anti-competitive. But as the courts have become much more conservative and adopted a very conservative interpretation of antitrust law that focuses pretty narrowly on whether or not a merger will harm consumers, 
then you see bigger and bigger mergers being approved that in the past wouldn't have been. And so bills like the merger moratorium are sort of saying, look, we can see that the system has gone out of whack. We have mergers that by a lot of standards would have been considered illegal are now being approved and consolidation in agriculture has just reached such a dangerous point for pretty much everyone involved in the system that we really need to put a pause on this, study the issue and figure out how we can improve these laws so they're actually preventing you know, dangerous accumulations of power. And so what are some of the like alternatives um, being tossed around right now? The current antitrust framework, what's called the consumer welfare standard, basically focusing like very narrowly on whether or not a merger will harm consumers, normally in the form of higher prices for consumers. And so going to a, in the case of mergers, at least a system that is much more clear and makes sort of a normative judgment of, you know, we know past a certain point, you know, a lot of scholars say markets with where the top four companies have 40% of the market are considered dangerously competitive. Like at that point, we see that there are leeways for companies to work together to abuse their market dominance. And so instead of having, you know, this consumer welfare standard, you could set what are called bright line rules. A bright line rule refers to a law or regulation that doesn't require interpretation. Basically a very objective rule. Basically saying, past a certain market share, um, you know, a merger will be under a high level of scrutiny. It'll be considered presumptively illegal unless the corporation can prove that, you know, this market share was gained by fair means, that this merger won't have a, not just harm on consumers, but harm on workers, farmers, competition more broadly. A lot of consolidation, I think, is happening because it's a question of, you know, building power. One company wants to get big so that they can negotiate with another company that is bigger and sort of putting pressure on them mm-hmm. higher up in the supply chain. So a good example is, you know, meat companies will say, you know, well, we're not getting big to abuse farmers or to gain dominance. Like we need to get big so we can negotiate with Walmart because like Walmart is huge and they're, you know, requesting better and better prices or lower and lower prices from us and we need to build power to to fight them. So sometimes consolidation and integration is maybe not necessarily about manipulating the market but instead is simply because of competition. Is that kind of what you're saying? I mean, I think it it makes firms compete on the wrong things. I think it ultimately is about market power, but it makes it so when you have a system that's so consolidated and everyone is abusing their market power, then all of a sudden that's like what you compete on. You compete on who can be the biggest, Mm -hmm. who can screw the system the most, who can get the best deals, you know, get away with the worst contracts. Um, And, you know, how can we screw like everyone else around us rather than, you know, I'm competing on a quality product. I'm competing on, God forbid, like treating the planet and workers well, (laughs) you know, like pro-social things. Um, Yeah, instead it makes it so everyone feels this 
pressure to be pretty ruthless and yeah, abuse their market power more than the next person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and it's obviously such a polarizing topic. Um, I don't know about you, but I find myself struggling to know who to believe or what to believe. So I just was wondering like how you find truth and where you look for those sources. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think the main issue for consumers and for all of us is that it is really shrouded in a lot of layers of confusion and proprietary information and, um, you know, really getting down to the bottom of, you know, even if you can find scientific results that, you know, are testing a certain chemical, like knowing who was funding those studies and, um, and it's also just a, a complicated topic. And so for the investigative journalism that has been out there, I mean, it shows time and time and again, the huge influence of the chemical industry mm -hmm. over this agencies that, you know, are regulating it. Like, yes, there are large regulatory processes, but without a doubt, these companies have a huge influence over that process. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, their fingerprints, um, yeah, an influence over the regulatory system and the revolving door between regulators and industry uh, has been documented. And so, you know, I think that, you know, that doesn't show you definitively that, you know, these products are not safe or not being accurately tested, but it definitely shows the power of these companies and the influence that they have. It's hard to say that we should just not use these chemicals. Um, definitely hard to actually enforce something like that. Like what are some smaller steps that people can push for more regulations? Yeah, you can envision a system in which there's a much lower use of pesticide and herbicide application than there is today just by having more diversity and more choices and more discrete management of uh, mostly yeah, weeds and, and pests. Part of the reason why there is an increased use of agricultural chemicals stems from the type of food production that we have. Mm -hmm. And so to go to the source, like you need to be changing the way you produce food from the beginning. We need to be moving away from a system of agriculture that encourages so much overproduction of all different kinds of crops. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously provides farmers a fair price, but not at the expense of rural communities, of the environment. I think this whole time I've been struggling with how overwhelming it is to try and imagine change. Because in the big picture, society as a whole would have to change its food priorities, which is a pretty privileged thing to ask. Not to mention how hard it would be to try and change a food system that is so strongly supported by government funds and powerful corporations. But Claire reminds us that markets aren't this natural force that we have no control over. Knowing that markets are a product of laws, they're governed by rules and 
in a democracy, we have the ability to shape those rules and markets can absolutely be regulated and shaped to have more pro-social outcomes and the outcomes that we want and to be more fair. These are all choices. And I think we can just as well make different choices. How do you expect this sector to change in the next five or 10 years? Um, Super big well, question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess like how would I expect or like how would I like want it to? How would you want it to? Yeah. <laughs> um, right now, a handful of very powerful investor owned for the most part corporations make most of the decisions about how we produce food, how it's distributed, what our food system looks like, and just vesting more of that decision-making, both more locally in a more decentralized type of food system, mm -hmm. but also within different kinds of businesses, within you know worker-owned businesses, more cooperatives, um, more community-based mm -hmm. businesses, so not these very large national, you know, investor profiteering, <laughs> financialized companies. Mm -hmm. um, agriculture mm -hmm. specifically is a very, as much as farmers, you know, can be very conservative themselves and want to say that they don't want help from the government, they're getting a ton of help from the government. The agriculture is one of the most government involved industries we have in the United States. And so it's not a matter of if there's government involvement or not, it's, you know, what side is the government on? Um, and to date, you know, it's been on the side of corporations and to some extent like wealthy white landowners. <laughs> and so we can absolutely be on the side um, of people of color, of workers, of the environment, of eaters, <laughs> of everyone else. Um, yeah, can definitely shift their priorities. And so I find a lot of hope and agency in that, that, you know, everything can be changed.